speaking from someone who has experience of someone who has changed lanes numerous times, um, look for the problem. Look for the challenge. Hmm. See if you can invoke any type of change some way. What's up, tribe? Welcome back to the podcast that brings you closer to the world's biggest risk takers and enemies of the status quo. This podcast is for people who want to take the plunge in life but need a little nudge. I'm your host, Coach Darren K. Roberts, and I went from Harvard Law to the NFL by the grace of God and good old-fashioned grit. Tribe, that was Jody Mixon, and this woman is a serial entrepreneur. Currently, she's the co-founder and VP of marketing for Crypto Fury. This company is going to revolutionize the way that consumers make purchases around the globe. Before jumping into the world of tech, Jody was a teacher and leveraged the ability to find solutions to age-old problems in the world of tech. Hey, let's tune in and listen to Jody Mixon. Jody, welcome to the tribe. How are you? I am great. Thank you. Okay, here's the first question. You're my favorite Canadian, by the way. Here's my first question for you, okay? If I walk into your high school and pull you out of class and ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? What would that answer have been? I want to be an archaeologist. That was quick. A lot of people have to think about it. Okay, so what sparked that interest in archaeology? I think it goes back to seventh grade when a teacher of mine said to a small group of girls, just go to the university and talk to somebody. So we each got our dimes from our parents, got on the bus, took the transfer, figured out how to get to the big old university down the way, went to the geology department, and they gave us so many samples of rocks and minerals that we felt like we were the shit. (laughs) We came back to school the next week and presented, and that's all it took. I love... You know, going to your teacher, I love the open-ended nature of that project. You know, as a current lecturer here, I think sometimes my assignments are too kind of in the weeds. But he said, basically, go to the university and talk to somebody. Wow. So that version of you wanted to be an archaeologist. Yes. After graduating from school, what is the first thing that you do? Well, I did not go straight to college. My parents both have a very low education. Hmm. They were not brought up in a very valued education family. My father has an eighth grade uh, education. However, he built an incredible business. And my mother has a 12th grade education. And so my brother and I at the same time decided to go to college, and we found ways to pay for it ourselves. I got a full-ride bursary. Hmm because of some work I was doing with uh, a program in Winnipeg where we would go into the community and apprehend kids out of unsafe situations. Hmm. After doing that for three or four years, I was given a full-ride bursary to pursue teaching Hmm. and working with kids of that nature. So I do want to come back to this point because um, as the listeners are about to find out, I mean, you are probably the pivot queen in terms of, you know, your ability and your knack for navigating through different twists and turns. But this this genesis in education, talk about the, the role that teaching and education have played in your life. 
In my life, I was fortunate to work in a northern Manitoba community um, that consisted of a lot of children who had native ancestry backgrounds, native Canadian Indian backgrounds. Now, hold on. Give the, you know, we Americans, uh, for the American listeners, we're bad at geography. So Manitoba... Is eight hours north of Minneapolis. Gotcha. Okay. Home of the Vikings. Okay. Yes, sir. And just being able to work with kids off reserves who were coming into a community where they didn't live, they didn't know the value system, I found it as important to include them and immerse them and include them in fully in the structure of school where they didn't really understand how much power they had as individuals and teaching them that they could do anything with their lives was probably that my biggest goal at that time. That was way back in 1990. Hmm. And from there, what is your next step? I worked for two years very, very hard to try to get a tenure position, hmm. was given a tenure position, and then six months later, we were all laid off. And with the population of Canada not growing and not seeing any foreseeable f- future, I was in Long Beach at the time at Christmas time, sitting on a beach listening to a radio when there was a call for 200 teachers to be hired the next day. And I happened to find the best outfit I had in my luggage and dressed myself up, got myself down to the Long Beach Unified School District and uh, told them I was interested in teaching there. And they pursued uh, me as their science department head immediately. And they knew that I was a woman in math and science coming from Canada and they wanted to use that in a urban area in Los Angeles. Hold on, okay. You're sitting on a beach in Long Beach, drinking what? Not drinking. You weren't no, drinking. I was by myself oh, wow. on a single towel, listening to the radio. My friend was at work. She was at work all day. I didn't know what else to do, so I walked down to the beach, and I hear, hmm, there could be a job offering. Hmm. Okay, so a lot of people would have heard that that sort of pitch for 200 teachers and immediately talk themselves out of finding the best outfit in the suitcase and walking down to the hiring office. What was the inner dialogue going on at the time for you? Like, what made you say, okay, yes, I'm going to do this? You know, I just, I come from a family where we're risk takers and we just put ourselves out there all the time. And just being in an environment where there was a challenge that I needed to attend to, I took myself to that place where what skills could I offer? What could I bring to the table? I knew I had six years of firm teaching math and science in a high school setting, chemistry 101, that I could push somewhere in Long Beach. I I knew there was a fit somewhere, and maybe they would believe in me. Hmm. So you get the gig. I get the gig. Do we go back to Canada, or do we just stay in the States? I go back to Canada. I sell my house. I sell all my possessions. (laughs) I load everything up. Um, I fly. My dad rents a U-Haul and brings everything down to Long Beach for me two weeks later. We're back in Long Beach now. Okay. First semester. So who are these kids? What what grade level? What are we teaching these little people? Well, let's talk about the first day um, that I drove up to the place. Um, I drove up to Franklin Middle School, which was at 5th and Cerritos Avenue. 
I get out of my car and I look across the street and there's porches of gangbangers in about six or seven row houses in a row. Hmm. And the first thing they say to me was, hey, Whitey, what are you doing here? And I turn around and I look at them. I'm like, I'm teaching. What do you think I'm doing here? And it was this big roar like, whoa. And I just gathered my stuff, locked my door, walked into the school, found where, you know, found the office and met my administrator who hired me. From that day on, my car never got tagged, never got touched. These gangbangers would stay on their veranda every night until I left the school, which would be sometimes six o'clock at night. Hmm. They were my protection. And I taught their younger brothers and sisters or cousins and nieces and nephews. That was all Snoop Dogg's area. Yeah, Long They were Beach. all really 90802. That was their <laughs> that was their reign. And they valued education. They wanted their younger kids to develop and grow and be gifted and talented in some area of schooling. So they recognized, hey, there's this chick who maybe can help us. Hmm. What was the what was you teaching in class? Uh, math and science. Math and science. But I integrated it so that it was a concrete situation, and then I applied for a grant from Avon of all people, the McConnell Clark Foundation. They gave me five thousand dollars to do some hands-on science with kids. Hmm. So I went and I was the science department had hired just you know, basically green coming into there. And my first thing was to clean out the science lab. It hadn't been touched for a decade. So I gathered some kids and had a little club after school. We'd clean out all these supplies and, you know, get rid of things how we should, um, you know, call the district, come pick up things that we weren't certain of. And we tried to restructure and re... um, kind of restructure that whole lab so that it would be purposeful for the school. Hmm. And I think most of the kids didn't know what hit them because here is this white woman. I was in a school of, I think we were 2% Caucasian. Hmm. And here's this white woman from Canada telling me I need to help her with the science lab so that we can conduct concrete experiments because she got five grand to help us. And we just continue to work together. Hmm. Yeah, and it sounds like, you know, one of the realizations that I've sort of arrived at, I think, too late in life is it doesn't matter, right? Like people, if people think you can help them, they can be green, red, yellow, the middle of Long Beach, Alamo Heights, Highland Park, you name it. But there's this natural yearning to get help. And when people see that someone's genuine, they're like, okay, they latch on. So you've got these kids in there helping you discard Bunsen burners and crucibles and all the things and that's probably not experience that they had had prior to your you know getting there not at all and then i became involved with dr william ferguson who was an incredible educator at franklin middle school and she was writing a grant and she asked me if i wanted to get involved and i said sure i'll write the content for this book and um she ended up being awarded a $5 million grant from the Joseph P. Kennedy Jr. Foundation to conduct change in 90802, which was the highest teenage pregnancy zip code in the United States at the time. It's a seven-mile radius zip code. And we were to try to prevent teenage pregnancy 
the Joseph E. Kennedy Jr. Foundation had an interest in it because through their studies they found that teenage pregnancy was a prevalent source of children with special needs. Hmm. Hold on. Let's hit the pause button. From 5K to 5 million. Mm-hmm. Now you're going from cleaning out a science lab <laughs> to finding some way to tackle teenage pregnancy in the zip code with the highest rate of teenage pregnancy in the United States of America. And you're how many years out of Canada at this point? I was like four months out. Four months out. Four months out. And you're like, hey, so I think a part of, I I love to sort of um, kind of highlight these themes. You're a person who just says yes to things, right? Like you are open to, this sounds interesting, Sure, I'll walk down and see if I can get hired as a teacher. Or, oh, that ground sounds cool. I'll write the content. You're open just to saying, let's do this. And so you jump on this $5 million grant. Did you or the woman you were working with have any clue of what you were going to do? Dr. William Ferguson did. Mm -hmm. And um, she took me under her wing the moment she met me. Um. She had been in the staff at Franklin Middle School for a few years, and this was something that she had written. She had developed a triangle of caring model for Eunice Kennedy Shriver and Maria Shriver, and they decided to invest in Franklin Middle School. One middle school got $5 million over five years to combat teenage pregnancy, and in the first year... We reduced it by 25%. What did you do? Amazing things. There was such a great staff of, of interesting influencers. We d- devised these programs where we had enough money to go to each single block of Long Beach and find a mom with a kitchen and hire her to have a study center for after school because that's the most critical time for children in America is the time between 3.30 or end of school and the time the parent is home or the time that family structure begins. Mm. And so what they did is they created safe study areas at the end of each block of that 90802, and they would get so many different advisory committees involved from the police the gang unit and the police, to the clergy in the area, to the community leaders, to anybody who was a business leader. We got everybody involved to tell them, hey, this is what we're going to do, and this is how we're going to conduct change. You know, I want to call you a techie. I don't know if you approve, but I think I'm just going to do it anyway and call you a techie. Like, you have this, you know, there's there's teaching, there's education, and then there's this science, technology component to you. And, and I want to sort of start to chart the path through all of your tech ventures. Okay. What's the first one? The first one would have been going to the Long Beach docks advised by Jim Lobb, who is probably the computer specialist for Long Beach right now, Mm -hmm. and going down to the docks and loading my car up with computers that they were about to throw away. In the morning, before school, every morning, I'd go down there. And they'd pile up my back of my car with computers. I'd take them to the school. Jim and I would try to 
see what we could make with these machines and uh, get them working so kids could learn to use them. Hmm. Wow. And then so you, from there? From there, at the time, a very good friend of mine launched a business called Cloud B, which looked at integrating technology with toys for the most part. We are the proprietors of the Sleep Sheep, Twilight Turtle, and many other Sleep awarding. Sheep. That's yes. you. My kids are thankful. Yes. My, my wife's thankful. You are very welcome. <laughs> so understanding how sleep and technology go to hand in hand, and sleep mm-hmm. is one of the most important elements that a child could take on. And learning how to sleep is so important for brain development that we just felt we had something there. Mm-hmm. Um, that company, and for 19, 20 years, of which we just sold 10, 15 days ago, and again, taking technology into toys and making it interesting enough for children to want to be a part of. Hmm. Did people get it when you're first, you know, we, um, I'm constantly amazed at how you think of the Internet and then there was this big sort of customer education uh, challenge because people either thought, oh, this is a fad, it's going to go away, or there won't be enough people congregating on it. And now it's just sort of a way of life. You talk about bringing technology into toys, what were some of the skeptics saying when you were building out some of these products, right? I mean, did sure. they say, hey, this, what were you That's hearing on, at the beginning? Oh, the lights are too bright. The music, where is this music coming from? Why do we need to integrate these sensory processing sounds and touch and feels? And, and what does this all have to do with brain development? Well, we were lucky enough to have a relationship with a company in Oakland called Fast Forward. Hmm. And the founders of that company were seven fellows from Stanford, I believe. And they had conducted a lot of brain research in children based on research they had done in Chernobyl with children who were fostered there. And they had done several studies, and that became... The book, Right from Birth, was the principle of Cloud B. I think it really got the company going and understanding where we could take this product. Hmm. Talk about the robots. I want to talk about the robots. Tell us about the ro- Tell us. Well, and, and describe for people because, obviously, this is audio only. But, um, sure. you know, I think that these robots and the way you've been able to kind of touch young people and adults alike as a as a teaching tool, talk about the genesis behind building them? and Well, a few of us from Cloud B, um, we met up with the founder, Nader, and we went to a winery for a weekend. We locked ourselves in, and we decided we're going to figure out some things, and let's introduce a robot to children. So several of us were there. Pause. <laughs> okay, well, where does this come from? I mean, what, what, what precedes the locking in... At the winery, like who has this moment of... Definitely the CEO and founder of Cloud B, as well as the CEO and founder of Ozobot, Nader Hamda. Hmm. Such a thrill for trying to bring new discoveries to children and trying to educate them in so many different ways. We've all been very blessed by technology and the rewards from it that we want to continue moving this on to the next generation so that everybody could have success with technology. Hmm. Not just us, but it continues moving on. So the gentleman of the time, Nader, very good friend of mine and uh, founder, decided, 
hmm, I want to teach kids how to do computer science. It's so important. It was the origin of my whole companies that I founded, and I feel like I wanted to, he wanted to share it with everybody else. Hmm. So we sat there and we looked at the product, or we didn't have a prototype. He described the product. I had gotten off the plane in San Francisco. San Francisco, we had driven to um, to Santa Barbara, and I had a brand new iPhone, and I was unsealing the box, literally brand new, still sealed. I was unsealing the box. I was taking the box apart, and I'm like, this is what the packaging should be like. Mm. And so I was hanging out with Nader on the counter saying, this is the packaging. Like, look, look, look. Mm. At each part came apart. And I said, look how user-friendly this is. This is inviting me into the technology. And I believe at that point that became a very important part of the product. Mm. And these robots are everywhere across the globe. These and, robots are yeah. everywhere. It's called Ozabot, and we launched at South by in 2014 at the Robotic Petting Zoo under the direction of Desi Mattel. She was the person who was in charge of the Robotic Petting Zoo at the launch of the JW Marriott in the ballroom. And she had gathered 20 or so. She had... Saw she had found us at CES. We had a big launch in CES that January, and she invited us to uh, the robotic petting zoo. We went there. We were in the middle of the ballroom, and all around us were fifteen or twenty high-end technology drone uh, survivor mode, different huge technology, and we're just there in the little with our little tiny smart robots. And her whole goal was to show the origin of computer science and where you could take it from there on. <laughs> and that launch was incredible. We had 100-plus media hits a day. We had the president of Slovenia come by. We had Carlos Slim bring, send some people from Mexico by because not only were we looking at rolling this out to the general public, but personally, I wanted to bring computer science to those cultures and communities that are not currently represented in computer science. And I thought that was a really big, important thing to do. Hmm. So I believe at that point we met Kim Kimberly Bryant, Black Girls Who Code. And we've never looked back since. We've been harmoniously working together, just trying to just build this whole product and, and she was using our Ozobots and promoting it and we were using her platform and promoting it and just finding synergy between different companies and people who are like-minded who had really true personal social values that they wanted to conduct in technology. Hmm. Technology for human good. That's what the whole purpose yeah. topic was. Yeah. I think of um, Herb Kelleher creating Southwest and he talked about de wanting to democratize the skies and it seems like for you in many ways you want to democratize technology and bring it to the masses in a way that they can not just consume but also create exactly what is next oh go ahead yet well I'm a part of uh, a nonprofit called field innovation team and we get deployed, not we, I've been deployed once, I shouldn't speak for the whole group, but 
they get deployed worldwide for natural disasters or war-torn countries. And what they do is they try to minimize the stressful impact of shock on children around the world by bringing the Ozobots to them in the middle of the forest, in the middle of a landmine, in the middle of anywhere. And they teach them, this is what's happening around the world. This is th- These are robots. They'll roll out their solar-powered um, plug-in unit, and they'll get these Ozobots going. And it's like it breaks down the barriers of kids under stress and kids in highly traumatic areas mm-hmm. that they're now like conduct. They're not afraid of technology where their name would be on a list on somebody's laptop or they'd be standing in line. And the, the computer was not the best friend to them. To now, they're actually playing with something technology and not being scared of it. Learning to trust technology is a whole, whole, other, whole other talk. <laughs> What's around the corner? So I think that it's clear you've been able to take advantage of opportunities, but also I think sort of see where the where the trends are leaning and then kind of go down the highway and, you know, zoom down the highway and, and get there um, in many ways before other people do. This is 2018. What, what does this world look like in 2030? Like just your grand vision. You'll be wrong about some things. You'll be spot on about others. But what do you think this world looks like in 2030? What the world looks like in 2030 to me is my hope and dream is that people all around the world will have access to some form of technology where they will either be able to see on a screen other places in the world and know that there's otherness and know that they matter in that otherness, that they are looking at that screen and conducting some relationship with the information that's being shared. Like that, you know, we have not yet taken technology exactly everywhere around the world. There's still so many places that have no clue about a laptop, no clue about a mouse, no clue about a robot. Mm -hmm. And I think by 2030, I would love to see the world have access to a relationship with technology. You're working on some top secret stuff. What can you tell us about? Well, I'm moving into the identity security area, especially for children, for anybody who could have their identity at risk. Um, Moving into launching and founding, being one of the co-founders of a company called Crypto Fury, where we're going to have a positive effect on identity so that you can control your own identity and not have somebody take it away, hack it away, or infiltrate your personal information. Is that all you want to tell me? <laughs> well, um, I'm sure there are non-disclosure agreements and there are lawyers squirming somewhere as they listen to you talk. Well, no, we launched the website and um, we are moving forward with many key partners and we will be rolling out a brand new system of payments, of driver's licenses, of passports, mm. of airport security cards, of all types of forms of identification where you will have control over your own information. Hmm. Jody, coach up the person who wants to, is is considering a, a pivot from where he or she currently is, and let's say it's, it's professional in nature. What would be your advice 
to someone who is wanting to change lanes? <laughs> Speaking from someone who has experience of someone who has changed lanes numerous times, um, look for the problem. Look for the challenge. See if you can invoke any type of change some way. See if you have an idea. See if something that you think of can come to fruition through some means. Look for those people out there who are looking for you. Find a solution and maybe backpedal to the problem and see where it originates. Mm. So working from the end and then backpedaling to where it originates. What about college students? Here's a different group. So talk to a college freshman. You know, I, I teach around 300 students a year, many of them freshmen. And I'm always astonished by this sort of, uh, there are a lot of different factors going on. But one is this, the helicopter parent off in the distance. You can still hear the choppers like. And so there's this influence of mom or dad sent me here to do this. Insert here. And then there's this side thing that they really like but they're not quite sure maybe how to monetize it or how legitimate it is. And then you have universities who I believe are completely leading young people astray by saying, within a year, pick your major, right? And in four years, get out of here. And when you get out of here, you need to have a job so we can kind of mark your name off the list. College freshmen who are trying to figure it out, what are some pieces of advice you would have for them? If I could say anything that would be helpful, that would be, Invent your internship. Hmm. Instead of finding the places that typically take interns all the time, you know, there's this list, and will I get in? Find some place who hasn't thought of it yet. Invent your internship. Go down to the local store X or business C and find a way that you can help. Hmm. Find a way that you can learn from others while you're there. Look for people who are doing something interesting, whether they realize it or not, you might be telling yourself, like, this is something I may want to get into. I was speaking with my daughter this weekend, and we were talking about choosing high schools and choosing areas in high school. And I just said to her, baby, this is a snapshot. This is a snapshot right now. You can change five times. I really don't care. <laughs> and she looked at me and she said, well, there's a lot of parents that, you know, they're wanting to know right away. And da, da, da. like, I don't care what you are, just as long as you are. And that's the best piece of advice I could give is just find your own route in an internship. Find your own company. Find your own passion. Maybe have somebody pull it out of you. Maybe have somebody point it out to you. You know, you're really good at this. And take that and use that as your steam to go forward. Hmm. Invent your own internship. I may steal that from you. That is good. Um, the current system is, like you said, get the newsletter from the career services office, click on all of the outdated links, go to some website and submit some app that you probably have a 20% chance is going to be read by a human and then wait, right? It's like, right. and that's not it, yeah. And, you know, the internship can even be outside of your your interest. You will still learn something. You will still learn how to work with people on a similar topic. You'll still learn to become, like, you feel a part of a team, which is really, really important at that age. 
because you're you're wayward. You're you're on your way out. You're going someplace. You don't know where yet, but you're going someplace. So why not why not fill your bucket with people who can help and you you know little touch points you can touch upon as you get closer to your graduation date and see how those people can help you. I mean, maybe it's somebody at church, maybe it's somebody that your parents know, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's somebody that you know is a parent of a a, a, a fellow classmate that you had a sport with. Maybe it's someplace like look for those opportunities and stop and observe. Hmm. Stop and observe what people are doing with their careers. Mm. You are just dropping some nuggets here. This is good stuff for the young and the old and the new and the, you know, person on a fifth career or, you know, finding the gaps in the marketplace. And then trying to connect what you think. You don't have to be an expert. This is what I think holds a lot of people back, right? It's this myth that you have to be the best of the best in whatever area that you're working in in order to add value to someone. And sometimes we forget for the struggling grocery store or the startup, your level six proficiency may be exactly what they need, right? And so don't discount your ability to contribute value because in your bubble, you don't think that you quite size up against the others. When we were rolling out Ozabot, I felt when we started going to education conferences, I remember telling my CEO, you know, we really need to talk to these seasoned teachers. They're the ones who the STEM has just been shoved on their table. They're told to make their learning strategies follow STEM. And they're coming to this conference for, what, the 10th time that they've been so I took myself and I and instead of being behind a booth, I went in front of the booth and I started talking to because it was predominantly a lot of seasoned female teachers who were in their 50s, 60s. They were being put on the brink with here you're going to be teaching the STEM project or the STEM program. So I started speaking with them and I said, "You know, here, watch this." And I showed them the robot. And they did one thing, took them three to five seconds. I said, you're a roboticist. <laughs> you have more experience in your, than your students in robotics. And they would just look at me like as if I were crazy. I'm like, no, no, no. You need to take this back to your school and say this is what you want to do in your classroom because not only is this going to help them as students, this is going to underline you as your profession. And you're going to become this expert just by following these programs. And you can show your administrator, you can show your district, you can do a STEM fair, you can show your parents. You're going to become the robotics expert. Mm. And so many of them kind of wrote back later saying, you know what? You gave me permission to learn. You gave me mm. the permission to just go with this and run. And I trusted the company and I trusted the learning strategies and the lesson plans and Damn it, I look like a professional. <laughs> so for so many people, I felt that not only were we helping kids and, and underrepresented cultures in technology and computer science, but we were also giving seasoned educators their next step into their career. Mm. You know, this on this expert point, um, you just made me think that expertise is not a byproduct of aptitude it's experience 
Like it, it is, it is, you've been in the trenches, you've been tinkering with this thing until the early morning, you've screwed some stuff up, the robotics have blown up, you've lost some pieces, you had to glue some, like you become an expert by jumping in and experimenting. And the wrong approach is to think that you have to have some score or whoever the, um, you know, the world's deemed the experts now have sort of blessed you with this title. You don't need that. You just need experience. You just get in there and get your, get your hands dirty, mess some things up. And the byproduct is you become an expert through, through action. Mm -hmm. Okay. Two minute drill. You ready for this? Rapid fire. Random questions from nowhere. Number one, one last tweet. This is it for you, Jody. for life. You know, going back when I was in my early women in math and science days in Canada, I can remember this one neighbor who taught next door to me. And he would come out of his class every day and say, the eagle has landed. <laughs> and I have used that ever since for the last 25 years, whenever something, whenever a deal has done Something has been signed. An agreement has been made. That's always been my, my text to somebody. The eagle has landed. The eagle has landed. The eagle has landed. I like it. Okay, Spotify, IPO is around the corner. You are forced to choose one song that for the remainder of your life, this is the only song you will ever hear. Whether you're in an elevator, whether you are on... Um, you know, this is the waiting where you're waiting for the customer service to come on in your car, running around town. One song. Citizen Cope, Hurricane Waters. Woo. We're going to have to pull that track. Why? You know, at the year after we launched Ozabot, a couple of people came down here for the ACL Festival. We were tired. We were worn. We were really just on our last leg. And I think it was the year that we had all the mud rain storms at ACL. We were up to our shins in water. And listening to Clarence sing his songs, his tunes, and for the first time hearing Citizen Cope, that was like, oh, hmm. that was like kind of our salvation. Hmm. You're going to have a drink with one person from history it'll be a, a cocktail of your choosing any person who would that be <laughs> I think I would have a glass of wine with a person whom you've never heard of before named Thana Delther she was an Indian scout way back in the 1700s in Canada 1800s who would take settlers across the barren lands from one civilization to another. She was the guide. Hmm. And she was the force. She was the power. I would love to speak with her. Wow. She was our uh, Sacagawea. Yes. Same function. Jody, this has been incredible. Thank you. You know, we've been working to get Jody on the tribe. For the last three months, as you can imagine, she's extremely busy selling companies, buying companies, creating companies, and and most importantly, changing the world through technology. So thank you so much for joining the tribe. Well, thank you for listening. I appreciate it. 
thank you for listening to today's show. For show notes and to get goodies to all of the links from the show, visit a tribe called yes.com. That's a tribe called yes.com. And I have one ask for you. If you like the show, give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher. It would really help us to spread the gospel of the tribe. And finally, special thanks to Samantha Skinner and Jacob Weiss, our co-producers and partners in crime for serving up incredible episodes every single week from the University of Texas. Now go out there this week, slay some dragons and keep saying yes. Yes.